Let's do a quick orthodoxy test. What do you think about this statement? The central doctrine of the gospel is the atonement of Jesus Christ. It sounds great, right? Nothing wrong with that. Well, this statement comes from the Church of Latter-day Saints website, which we commonly know as the Mormons. They use the same words as Christians, but they mean entirely different things by those words. What do they mean when they say gospel, atonement, and most importantly, who are they referring to when they refer to Jesus Christ? The Mormons deny the deity of Christ, and our salvation depends on that fact. Our salvation rests upon getting Jesus right, who he is, what he did, and what both those facts require of us. And what we see in the book of Hebrews is that the early Christians held a high Christology, which means that they understood Christ as God. He is worthy of all worship and praise that the one true and living God deserves. So very early on, not centuries later, but very early on, the Christians understood that Jesus Christ is the one true and living God. And that to turn away from Jesus is to turn away from the true and living God of the universe. And that is to commit cosmic treason of the highest degree. And so the message of Hebrews is this. If you're thinking about turning away from Christ, don't do it. Because Jesus is better and you'll be sorry. This is Understanding Hebrews. Life for a first century Jewish Christian consisted of social alienation, slander, and accusations of heresy by their family and friends. The Roman Empire persecuted Christians, but they tolerated Judaism, which made the prospect of returning to Judaism particularly enticing for Jewish Christians. If you turn back to Judaism, you get it all back. Your family, your social standing, your financial stability, you're welcome back into the synagogue, the community that raised you. You can have all the blessings of God without Jesus. And Hebrews rebukes this line of thinking. You can't have any of the blessings of God without Jesus because Jesus is God. So we're going to look at the first four verses of Hebrews chapter one to see this truth demonstrated. Let's look at the first two verses where we see that Jesus is the heir of all things and the one through whom God speaks. Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the first thing that we learn is that God speaks. We can't know God unless he makes himself known to us. And God makes himself known to us by speech or revelation. God's act of self-revelation or self-disclosure demonstrates his love for creation. He wants us to know him because knowing him brings about our greatest good. God made us to worship him. And so when he reveals himself to us, he's calling us to fulfill the purpose that he made us for. And when he fulfills the purpose that he made us for, when we fulfill that, we become the flourishing, joyful human beings that we were always meant to be. So God speaks, and that speech is a demonstration of his love for creation, that we would know him who is the greatest good and the fulfillment of our purpose. The second thing we learn is that God speaks definitively and personally by his son, Jesus Christ. 
Hebrews divides history into two periods, long ago and these last days. So prior to Christ, long ago, God spoke to his people, the Israelites, through prophets, dreams, and visions. But in this new period of history, the last days that Jesus Christ inaugurates, that he brings to pass, God now speaks by his son in one way, through Jesus. Jesus is the final word of God, but he's also the personal word of God. We're not just hearing a vessel relaying the messages of God like a prophet, but we're hearing God himself speaking to us. That's why Jesus says in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The prophets of old spoke the words of God, but Jesus speaks as God. And there's a huge difference there. Jesus Christ is the very word of God. He is speaking not merely like God, but as God himself. But if Christ speaks as God, how does he get appointed heir of all things? That's kind of strange. Doesn't God already possess all things? Well, Hebrews demonstrates for us the early church's theology of the incarnation or the enfleshment of God. In the one person of Jesus Christ lies the union of both a divine and a human nature. So God made Adam as a son of sorts. And sonship in the Jewish mind is somebody who is an adult son who carries out the affairs of his father's business. And so when God creates Adam, Adam is acting as a representative of God's rule over all the earth. That's why he names the animals. That's why he keeps the garden and he subdues the earth around him. So Adam is an heir of all things as a son, but his sin brings about death and decay. So God appoints a second Adam much later, Jesus Christ, as the heir of all creation to redeem everything lost by the first Adam. But this requires that this second Adam possess the same humanity as the first Adam. Yet unlike the first Adam, the second Adam never sinned. And the second Adam is also God who created the world. Therefore, Jesus Christ as creator must possess true divinity, but as the second Adam must possess true divinity humanity. And we see those woven together very early on in the book of Hebrews, which was, again, written probably in the 60s, which is 30 years from the resurrection of Christ, a very early understanding of both the divine nature and the human nature of Jesus Christ united in the one person of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the next verse, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we perceive the sun by the light that it radiates. And likewise, we perceive God by the sun who comes from him. The sun possesses the exact imprint of God's nature. The Greek word for imprint is karakter, which forms the basis of a word character. It refers to the etching or imprint of an image onto a coin. So Jesus images God in a way unique to himself. So we as humans image God in a representative fashion after Adam. Think about an ambassador who goes to a foreign country. He, he goes as a representative of his king, but he himself is not a king. But Christ, on the other hand, images God not as a representation, but as God in the flesh. He truly is God and he truly is a man. So Jesus Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power, which identifies him as God. So again, you see things only spoken of God being applied to Jesus, and you th see things only spoken of man applied to Jesus as well. And one of my professors said that only heretics sleep at night. Orthodox Christians stay up all night thinking, 
truly God, truly man, truly God, truly man. Whereas a heretic just says, he's just God, not really a man, they go to bed. Or he's just a man, not really God, goes to bed. But again, if you're an Orthodox Christian, this is the divine mystery of the incarnation. If it confuses you, if it causes your brain to flip up and around and, and, and you get lost in this, that means that you're actually reading scripture correctly. This is the divine mystery of the enfleshment of God. Now, it's really important to remember a creator-creature distinction. The creator, God, is not dependent upon the creature, but the creature depends every moment upon the power of the creator for his existence. Therefore, if Jesus is the creator, then he's God. If he, if he is the one through whom all things were created and he sustains everything by the word of his power, then Jesus Christ is clearly being referred to as the one true and living God. Jesus Christ is the one true living God who created all things and upholds all things by the word of his power. And yet, he is also the son born into the world, who is now the heir of all things, who is the second and greater Adam. He's not an elevated angel. He's not the highest of God's creatures, but he is the creator God himself who spoke all things into existence. And yet, he is also the creator God who has entered into his creation through the incarnation, into a specific role in a specific time for a specific purpose. And we see that purpose in the next verse. Verses three to four. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So Jesus Christ enters into a story already in motion. God promised King David a son to rule over the throne of Israel forever. He also instituted a priesthood to purify the people from their sins. Yet Israel's history tells the tragic tale of idolatrous kings descended from David and a corrupt priesthood. And so Jesus Christ comes in as the greater priest and king who receives a superior name to angels, the name of son. Again, like Adam was a son of God. Like King David is a son of God, Jesus Christ is the royal heir to that title, the, the adult son who carries out the affairs of his father in a greater way. And there are two senses, again, in which Jesus Christ exists as the son. With regard to his divine nature, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity with the name the son. He is the exact substance of the Father. He is truly God. But with regard to his human nature, he is the royal king descended from David who rules over God's kingdom as God's son, who's born into the world to fulfill that role. So again, we see a very early understanding of the incarnation, the union of a divine and a human nature in the one person of Jesus Christ. They are not mixed, nor are they ever separated, but they are always distinguished from one another, each one maintaining its own integrity in the one person of the Son. Remember, heretics sleep at night, but Orthodox Christians stay up all night trying to understand that mystery. He is greater than the angels, not merely because of his godness, but also his humanity. And this is what's going to flow into the rest of chapter one's argument. The ruler of the universe who sits at the right hand of the father is a human being. In Jesus Christ, we see not only God, but our own destiny as heirs with him with regard to his humanity. In Jesus, we not only see the perfection of God, but of man as well. His glorious destiny is ours. That's why getting Jesus right matters. To reject him is not only to reject God, but to reject our own humanity. 
to reject the glorious destiny God has for us. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things, the exact imprint of God's nature, and the ascended Son who reigns over all. And in him, God speaks to us a word of hope, redemption, and salvation. It's like in Ephesians 2. God has lifted us up with Christ in the heavenly places. Jesus Christ is the perfect man. He is the prototype. He is the end goal of our own existence. We will be like him in his resurrection. We will have resurrected bodies. We will be co-heirs with him because of the glorious plan of redemption that God has given. And that's the message of Hebrews. God has spoken. He has spoken in Jesus. He has spoken that God is the only one who can save us. And God is the only one who can save us. He is truly God that he can save us. And he is truly man that God can save us. That he can be our representative. And in Jesus Christ, in the very enfleshment of God, we see the union of the divine and man. We see the, the, the loving relationship that God has with his creation. We see what God thinks about us. God wants to redeem humanity. God has spoken that Jesus is better. And the question that this begs, or the response that this demands is that we listen to this son. Because to listen to Jesus is to listen to God himself. To hear his voice is to hear the voice of God. To see Jesus is to see God in the flesh. And through the word of God, we have access to this Jesus, who for all eternity reigns as one of us. 